3: Hi, I'm Michael Goodfriend, executive producer of the Play On podcast series at Next Chapter Podcasts. Shakespeare's plays often call for music. There are songs to be sung by characters of all stripes, from the witches in Macbeth, to the fool in King Lear, to Moth in Love's Labour's Lost. But the play that calls for more songs to be sung than any other in the canon is probably Twelfth Night which is now a podcast series produced by us here at Next Chapter Podcasts. This is part 2 of The Anatomy of a Song with David Raifel, Daniel Benjamin, Robert Capadonna, and Lindsey Jones. I want to shift over to sound design. We have uh, another great artist here with us, Lindsey Jones who uh, we've we also did an interview with and you can hear uh, that interview with uh, me actually Lindsay and i had a great conversation uh when we were working on king lear that's in the uh, king lear bonus content it's just a, a a gift to have Lindsay doing the design on twelfth night as well we had so much fun doing lear he came right back and decided to do twelfth night with us and couldn't be more honored to have him here with us again Lindsay, you are so familiar with all of the elements of the journey and creating uh, sound design and, and the engineering components, composition as well. You are yourself a composer an accomplished composer. Yes. Thanks. Where, where do you, uh, fall in the process here with 12th night with the music that was composed the the audio capture that i should mention daniel did uh, a, a great deal with us but in this particular case um our engineer is the incomparable sadaharu yagi uh who is, is a terrific uh, engineer in his own right you take these elements what is your part in this process in creating the song and, and having it uh fit with all of the other elements that are at play
1: so it's interesting in this particular process i think i would liken myself to sort of being like a chef you know what i mean where there are i have a lot of really wonderful products to make a meal out of i have i have these this beautiful song um, that are that have numerous components including different instrumental tracks as well as um different vocals i also have the script as sort of like a a guide of how to follow it um and then i also have you know different sound elements that i'm going to put in to sort of create the scene around it and so um i i sort of wait for these elements to arrive you know and just sort of populate my pantry for lack of a better you know way of thinking about it um and I I remember getting um these elements for the first time the the dialogue as you mentioned is was recorded by Sadaharu yagi and edited by Larry Walsh and then um you know David's music, the vocals um from our actors and then you know there's just a moment when you start on it and you think, oh man we're going to eat well tonight. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's all there. Um, so at that point you're using the script as your guide, but you're also using these performances as your inspiration um, to really sort of uh, follow that as your sort of um, guiding creative force through guiding us through this moment of the, of the series. It was really uh, inspiring and, and delightful to work on.
3: So I want to talk about that a little bit because the song doesn't just kind of, it's not like you just make space for the song and plug it in and play it, right? You have to weave it into the overall narrative of of this episode and, and the the whole series, right? What, Where is your creativity heard in what we just listened to in this song?
1: Well, so I... I help in a number of ways here um to sort of um create the ambiance that surrounds the song as well as um mixing the song in such a way so that the the best elements of the material shine uh, I think would be the way to to describe it um the the, the way the scene is set up we're we're outside um We are at a house that is very close to a beach. It's nighttime. Um, Orsino is in a deep sort of melancholic state. And um, by asking Festi to sing this song, um, he's sort of allowing himself a moment to really indulge his emotions, to really indulge himself in that melancholy. And so I have, you know, the sound of waves in the background. I have to have the sound of crickets. (laughs) In sort of create in engineering the song, what I'm looking to do is to create uh, something that is surprising in the way that you are unprepared for the sort of emotional sort of journey that you're going to go on. I thought the way David described his personal experience with the song is kind of amazing because it's uh it is kind of our journey with the song as it as we experience it in the show. um when David mentioned that first that he thought it was kind of a cliched sort of um you know, slightly melancholy over the top sort of feel when we hear that record player start. With the record version of the song, it does feel a little sort of like it feels sort of um quaint in a way. You know, it makes us feel like, oh, it's an old standard we've heard before, and this is going to be a, a nice performance of that song. But as the song develops, um, and you are taken in by Rodney's performance of the the lyrics, which are just beautiful. Um, And you sent you really lock into his investment behind the the lyrics. And then midway through, we switch out the musical um, orchestration so that it no longer sounds like it's coming from a record player and now feels more full and fresh. Uh, And then as the sort of natural dynamics of the song shift in a way that we are sort of Moving to a much more spare instrumentation at the very end, um or more spare orchestration, and with the accompaniment of of viola stepping into sing that last part um it feels surprisingly emotional, and uh you are overcome by it in a way that you're like, "Oh my god, I I really feel this in a way that I wasn't prepared for. Um, and that's the experience that I'm shooting for and sort of engineering that experience.
3: When we listen to it, it starts out feeling distant, right? It feels like it's far away. Uh-huh. And then over time, as the song begins to swell and, the, and, and, and take on its own life, right? It, it suddenly envelops us and, and we're in it. Uh, and then it kind of fades away again at the end. This is your design work at play here,
1: yes. I mean, it's uh, obviously based around David's material, um, and the way that he sort of conceived it, um, and created the or- orchestral elements that would go in place. Um, but yeah, in a way, what what I'm trying to emulate is how we as humans experience emotion. You know what I mean? We don't, when we feel emotion, sadness, for example, or grief, um, these are not emotions that just suddenly start and end, but really emotions that sort of um, sort of take a hold of us and then grow and swell and then gradually ebb and um, you know, sink away Um, And so having a musical or sonic experience that emulates that, how we as humans experience emotion um, is a great way to really connect what is so powerful about music and sound to our emotional experience.
3: I guess this is a question for both you and and David in particular, but is there a point at which you feel like the music or the sound that you're designing or that you're composing kind of leaves you and, and you follow it. Does that make sense? In other words, you are there's a departure point from you as composer, you as designer where now the creation itself is guiding you.
0: I think that definitely happens. You know, it it is that feeling that people talk about of flow where I do feel like, okay, I have set something up here, but now I am just channeling something that is, that is happening. And, uh, as you put it very well, that I'm following something that is happening outside of me. Now Um, there are songs that I've written that I literally can't remember conceiving. They just, it's, it's like, okay. And I know that I did conceive them, but I can't remember how that happened. It's like I was in a trance.
1: Yeah. I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, I, David, I don't know what your experience is like creating music. I know you, you do it every day, but for me, no matter how many times I create music or sound design, there is an alchemy that I don't completely understand how it works in terms of inspiration. And you, you know, I, I'm unable to create music without emotionally investing in the music as if I was experiencing it personally. And So I think once you allow yourself to be vulnerable to that emotional journey of like, okay, I'm going to expose all of my inner vulnerabilities in order to experience this and then create music that reflects that journey that I have with that emotional experience. Um, Once you start down that road, it's, you just have to give over to the experience as much as possible and just, you know, just let the magic go through you. Um, and then, and then yeah. using things that, that, uh, Daniel described in terms of, um, EQ and noise reduction and all these things that are, you know, that he described as boring and on one level they are, but they are, they are things that are designed to just craft that special experience, you know? So like they they're only boring in the sense of like, when I talk about them, they're not that exciting, but in terms of what they do to, um, to really clarify that magic, that, that magic is still whole and clear no matter what, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you're, you know, if if you're lucky enough to have inspired performances, then really all you have to do is just help those performances along, but you, you can't invent that you know magic is magic from its core
3: Robert uh you have been the the managing producer on uh all of our play on podcast series from from the start uh and you were involved in uh, collaboration with me uh, from the time that that we uh uh Started on this commission. How are we going to make it work? What do we have to do? What do we need to line up? Mm-hmm. You run a music studio. You you are a, a part owner of, or a, 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 it's called New Monkey Studios in Los Angeles, uh, and you were the first to basically flag all of the items that had to be looked after in making these series work uh, from you know who we were going to get to do the engineering uh, and uh, as, as you were the one that found Daniel Ben Shimon and brought him on board uh, and then you handled the logistics of the remote recordings and making sure that all of those elements were in place. This is after a long uh, history uh, at managing artists recording artists and, and recording some really great artists along the way. Uh, I want you to talk to us about how you were able to coordinate all of these things and what were all the variables that we had to clock in order to get clean recordings from all of our artists. Can you walk us through a little bit of the process from, from your perspective? How this had to line up in order to accomplish something like the beautiful recording of "Come
2: Away." I can, Michael. You know, I think that one of the things that we discussed early on was that we were going to be charting brand new territory and doing these podcasts Shakespeare in in this way. I think there had been maybe one or two. Radio examples that we talked of, but I think that these examples were all done in probably more controlled environments, and we were about to embark on. And all while the pandemic was ebbing and flowing in uh, different different areas, we were just trying to figure out how we could keep everybody safe and and do things in a in a home environment. I looked at this as a way of marrying the somewhat of the traditional theater experience along with uh, a recorded play experience. And then along with a podcasting experience, trying to figure out how those three things interconnect as one. And we were very fortunate to be able to assemble a team that was able to, to help us achieve that. And one of the things that, that Michael, I know you and I spoke a lot about, Daniel and I spoke a lot about, in particular in the early time, about the engineering process and and working with actors and having that particular bedside manner, right? Somebody that would be able to perhaps talk through to somebody who does not have all the technological prowess. I am admittedly one of those people even though I'm I'm here talking about the the specifics of this. I look to people like Daniel Benjamin to help guide me and to try and synthesize that information but by no means am I the technical person. Um I'm a I'm a a road paver if you will. <laughs> and uh so we we really tried to have some people that would be able to communicate with the actors in a way where um if there was somebody uh, in in varying in ages, because it it's it's not even an ages thing of whether somebody would be technologically uh, recording savvy. It it really just is a question of somebody's particular experience, and um, we really try to find a a group of people that could put together a. a, a a way of communicating with the actors and assessing what their particular needs were and I think we talked a little earlier Daniel brought it up in terms of the the situations that you encounter with a particular recording environment and we did our best to bridge those
3: and in those particular recording environments you mentioned in a previous conversation if somebody has a bobcat or <laughs> you just don't if know they're, what they're yeah, in new york
2: yeah, yeah you you don't know what what you're entering into when you're when you're hiring on an actor and they're living um in in an apartment right you don't know whether they have um a roommate that works from home as well that has their own personal needs um of of uh the bandwidth of internet or, uh, or sound or so forth. You don't know whether they have a pet Bobcat. You don't know whether there's a, a, a church that, that likes to ring on point hour at the top of the hour. There are things that, that need to be calculated in. And sometimes you don't know until you've actually hired that actor. And we start getting into the, into the sound, um, phases of things and sometimes we're doing those checks at at say 9 a.m with somebody but we're recording at 10 30 and at 10 30 there's a different recording environment than at 9 a.m and we don't know that until the whole ensemble is put together (laughs) Lindsay's like shaking his head The, the the whole ensemble is put together everybody's live and all of a sudden one particular actor has a complication that we're trying to hurdle through from a sound department end so that we don't a- uh, agitate the 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 flow and keep that artistic flow going
3: and so i'm i'm looking at my kit here this is your kind of concoction Uh, It's a Pelican case. It's got uh, a microphone, a mic stand, uh, uh, a scarlet uh, box, and lots of wires and uh, headphones whatnot. This was something that you and uh, Daniel, as I recall, sort of broke down as to what, what would be needed by all the actors. And we needed it to be all the same, right? Everybody had to get the same equipment.
2: Mm-hmm. I want to add Greg Cortez, our mastering engineer and my head engineer at New Monkey Studio, uh, to the mix here because Greg was really essential in in helping us shape what we were going to get and how we were going to get. but the 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 synchronicity of gear is very important because even though the recording environment may change from one to one, at the very least, if we can find a way to, to equalize that and we talked about eq earlier this is using it in a different way but if we could equalize that scenario and then it's all coming down to the gear then the only other thing that we needed to figure out was making sure that that particular actor's computer was up to speed uh literally and then making sure that they had a direct and strong ethernet connection um oftentimes you know the the podcasting industry is the wild wild west right you just turn on a microphone record everything is made very easy for you and any anybody can do this but we're not looking for the anybody situation we're looking for a really excellence in broadcasting situation we want to make sure that we're we're aligning ourselves with with the top line we already have Shakespeare as a top line narrative, right. And we're getting the mo- the, the most wonderful and gifted actors we can to, to help um, punctuate that. And then we want to make sure that we're recording in a way where uh, any one of us who listens to podcasts, I'm sure that we have situations where even in the podcast that we love, there are certain guests that they've had on where the recording just isn't a snuff and it really takes you out of it. So as a broadcasting company at Next Chapter Podcast, we want to make sure that we're we're doing our best to get that sound the best we can.
1: The other part of this, just to say this too, is the architecture of any human's room makes mm-hmm. a big difference. Like, Michael, we're doing this now on Zoom, and I can see that you're sitting on a couch that looks pretty soft, and you've got some curtains directly behind you. So that's going to really soften the amount of bounce in the room. But, you know, if you were recording yourself in an empty garage, for example, uh, it would have, sound completely different. And most people don't move into an environment and think, ah, yes, this will be a perfect place for me to record audio. You know what I mean? Like, that's the very last concern they have. They they judge it for many other reasons. And so what ends up happening is um, you start to, become really personally acquainted with the actors and be like, okay, let's go through the rooms in your house Mm -hmm. and find the room that has the most soft material, which sometimes is actually their clothes closet. Um, And so you're, you're trying to find a space that is acoustically friendly as possible with the limited amount of space where the voice can bounce around the room um, to really find what would be an ideal recording situation and it it's totally up to fate you know what i mean like yes you will absolutely have to look out for that pet bobcat but really <laughs> in some cases the room is the bobcat you know what i mean like you've got to also figure that out
3: so it, it literally adds a layer of uncertainty on top of a layer of uncertainty which is the actor's voice which as daniel was saying is you know beautiful but unreliable right and then the uh, environment itself so so you're you're surfing on a lot of different <laughs>
2: that's right <laughs> and you know elements. i wanted to punctuate something on that too because when 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 we're recording either music or voice in in the studio um if you're in the middle of making a record sometimes you have the luxury of knowing, well, this particular guitar player or this particular vocalist is best maybe first thing in the morning, or they need to go through their day and have their, vo- let's say, on a voice end. Their voice will get a little weathered, but that's what the capture needs to be. So you might not tackle a particular vocalist's vocal until you know after a certain hour. When you have an ensemble... You have to have everybody firing at the same time, and it may not be their best time, but they need to bring their best to it. And from the sound department's end, we're trying to make sure that they sound as good as they would at their best when they're at their best, even if they're not at their best.
1: There's 11 million variables, (laughs) but ultimately, your goal is to get everybody to sound fantastic, equally fantastic. and then also for that to fit into the project in a way that feels complete and whole so that at no point during the recording are you're like, oh, that's odd. What's that sound? And I know that once you become a podcast producer and Michael, I know you can identify with this as well. You spend a lot of time l- listening to things and being like, is that a sound in there? What is that sound? <laughs> what am I hearing? How is that? Um, you're, those are all the variables you're trying to control.
3: Robert, I wanted to ask you, what I noticed visiting your studio was a sort of a wide variety of environments, right? All of it, as Amy Brenneman said, she, she went and recorded at New Monkey and, and was like, wow, this is the coolest place. It's <laughs> just so, I feel like an artist here, right? Mm. That's got to be part of your job right in, in uh, managing all of this is to create a space where people can be their most freely artistic and creative. Is that right? Am I, or or... it it, it is,
2: I mean, when our, our room has been a recording studio since the the mid seventies and it started as a jazz room and it went through a bunch of different iterations, but it's always been a recording studio. when, My partner and I took over New Monkey nearly twenty years ago. We were right at the boom, and and I'm sure you know David and, and Lindsay and Adam can sort of like echo this that it was right at the boom of Pro Tools, where everyone was recording from their bedrooms and from their basements at home, and and everybody was really captured by what Pro Tools could do, and Pro Tools is a wonderful and amazing um interpreter if you will. Um I remember when we were thinking about purchasing the room the, the record executive and producer Jimmy Iovine had a, had a line about like if you want to if you want to lose a million dollars buy a studio. <laughs> uh we were like oh boy this is, he's so right but I my thought was this is going to come around again. Everything in art is, 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 is circular. And if we could just hold on, and by the way, that pro tools rig, which we only had an analog gear, we, which was amazing. We could not afford, it was a $30,000 rig at that time. We could not afford it. So we didn't even have an opportunity to get in the game. And I'm, and I, You could buy home systems that were a lot cheaper, um, but they wouldn't do what we needed it to do from a studio end of things. So we had to wait until this whole thing kind of came back around. And at the same time, we had to wait until Pro Tools came down to a price that we could afford. And then we were able to marry those things together. But until then, the environment that you speak of was something that was very important to us um joel graves my partner in the in the recording studio uh a musician artist himself we took a lot of time to create that space so that when an artist walks in they're they're catching a wave of something that somebody's something's up here somebody's trying to do something somebody's trying to make me feel something. And that's great that Amy Brenneman felt that way when she walked in, it's what we're going for. And we don't know how people are going to react to it, but we hope that it it's inspirational.
3: I know we need to wrap up here. So I'm just going to ask you one last question. And then I want to uh, get back to David for one final, final thing. Uh, uh Robert, we go to new monkey, So New Monkey, obviously, you got the ball started with rolling with uh, the logistical stuff and, and getting everybody's equipment lined up and getting it out to all the right people and whatnot. And then it goes back to New Monkey. Everything goes back to New Monkey for what we call mastering. That is the mix that Lindsay puts together goes to New Monkey and it gets mastered. What is mastering?
2: When I was describing to to musicians what what this process is this is how i look at it what Lindsay does in, in this case Lindsay is building the car and he gets all the pieces together of the car right everything goes in every bolt gets locked down and and the engine and and everything and what the mastering does is it tunes the car it makes sure that there's no more rattles. It makes sure that that everything from uh, from an environment inside the car and outside the car is sort of pleasing. So it, it's sort of like a like a, a waxing, if you will. But it just equalize. We brought up this word EQ. It equalizes everything out and makes sure that everything is where it needs to be in order to deliver the message that Lindsay wants it to.
3: Lindsay, is that
2: fair?
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent description. I mean, essentially what they are doing is um they are looking at the sonic frequencies of what I've delivered and sort of maximizing those frequencies so to have the most full and pleasant version of what I've delivered. They're it's they are like just putting a little shine on the end of it um to um to make it sonically as uh as as full as possible and uh and i'm grateful the the masters that come out in new monkey sound fantastic so they they do a great job and i'm really grateful to greg cortez in particular for his work
3: thank you so much and okay david uh in creating this song i know you said that there's a machine that did the plunk and the uh, various things but then there's in addition to rodney and to jamie n there were some uh, musicians that were recorded in, in, in your composition. Can you tell us who they are?
0: Yeah. Uh, it's the, I was really lucky to, uh, be able to work with Dan Cantor at Notable Productions. It's a small studio in Watertown, Mass. Uh, he's a colleague of mine at Berkeley and, um, he's a fantastic engineer. Uh, And he also has a room with a grand piano in it. uh, And that's where the uh, excellent pianist, uh, David McGrory, who who came in and played the piano on this on literally a day's notice because our original uh, pianist came down with COVID the day before the recording session. And so I called up. David, and he just jumped in and did an excellent job. That's great. <laughs> Never
3: a dull moment, right? All the way up until the, the moment we record, we don't know what's going to happen.
0: <laughs> we are playing on hard mode, I tell you.
3: David Rifle, Lindsay Jones, Robert Cappadonna, Daniel Benjamin, thank you so much for walking us through the countless variables that are at play whenever we do any recording much less the extremely complicated components that are at work in recording and mixing and mastering uh, and designing around a song. You've been listening to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. You can learn more about the Play On Podcast at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcasts.com. That's and as a next C as in chapter podcasts with an S at the end, dot com, where you can find other play on podcast series and interviews along with talk podcasts, like the 500, the 10 tough juice podcast with Ron Butler and how I got greenlit, a new podcast that Robert for Capadona has put together. Uh, it's been really a pleasure talking to all of you. And I look forward to working with you all on future collaborations.
2: Thank Thank you, you. Michael. Thanks, Michael. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime.